Hey everyone, it's a balmy summer night, and we're back with more of The Goods, a film podcast. How are you doing, Dan? You know, I'm recovering from a cold, so if you hear me cough, if you hear me hoarse, that'll probably be why. Otherwise, I'm doing quite well, you know? Summer's in full bloom. I just booked a flight, going to Florida with you in a few weeks, so got a lot to look forward to. What about yourself? That's right. Yep, we've got our... Rockafire excursion on the horizon. We're heading into the belly of the beast as far as the Delta variant is concerned. <laughs> uh, but I think it's going to be fun. Yeah, we're both vaccinated. Finger, fingers crossed. That's right. We're invincible. Indeed. And I believe we've both watched a movie for discussion here. Yes, sir. One I had not seen before. The film I've queued up for discussion this time around is... Boogie Nights, which I believe was Paul Thomas Anderson's directorial debut, or at least the one that he burst onto the scene with in 1997. Yeah, it was his second movie. His first movie was called Hard Eight, and it certainly did not make the splash that Boogie Nights did. You're, you're absolutely right that that was his coming out to the world. And this movie takes as its setting the era of so-called porno chic or uh, the golden age of porn. This was a kind of unusual moment in pop culture history where all of a sudden adult explicit films received critical praise and broad commercial success in theaters. Had you read about this at all in your film history research, Dan? Just a little, nothing too in-depth. I know that um, it was like a pretty big movement, like the movie Deep Throat, which I think is one you're probably going to call out here in a minute, is by some metrics like one of the top 10 most profitable movies ever. I think it made like something like half a billion dollars by the time its run ended or something ridiculous like that. I might not be exact on those metrics, but it was a big deal for a while, or at least a big moneymaker. Yeah, whenever you see a blurb about this period in your film studies textbook, it's always going to be a picture of a poster or something from Deep Throat. That's kind of the most iconic one. Um, it, that came out in 1972. And, I mean, it was influential enough that that's where the dude's code name in Watergate comes from. You know, it's not the other way around. Or is it? Well, hold on here. What Deep Throat is the pseudonym given to the secret informant who provided information in 1972 to Bob Woodward. So it's right around the same time. Okay. So I don't know for sure, but I think he took it from the movie. I don't think it's the other way around. So it was definitely in the zeitgeist. Uh, apparently this started with the film Blue Movie, which was an Andy Warhol film in 1969. And for some reason, I always get Andy Warhol and Woody Allen mixed up. It's because they've got, like, the same initials, but in reverse. Interesting. Not the same guy, though. And there's, like, similar cadence to their their name, but, I mean, they're extremely different. So Andy Warhol was super artsy and experimental, and Woody Allen made 
you know, romantic comedies. They were boundary pushing romantic comedies, but they were all very much within the well-known cinematic grammar with a few minor exceptions. But there were a handful of these influential porn films. And as Dan said, since they were made on such low budgets, to have them suddenly become popular meant they were like off the charts profitable. I mean, think of like the Blair Witch Project. There was concern that this was going to like change the whole production model of Hollywood. It's like people don't care how artsy the movie is. If there's sex, that's what we should go ahead and do, was what some people thought the future of film held. It's interesting. So the code, the production code, fell sometime in the mid 60s or early mid to late 60s, right around then. So this is like, I don't know, as people spent close to a decade, a little less than a decade, pushing further and further the boundaries of what they could do with this kind of more deregulated cinematic uh, landscape. It's, it's kind of intuitive to me that you would reach this this logical conclusion. And this is also like shortly after the summer of love and the, you know, liberation movements and the beginning of sex positivity and all those things. So I have never studied it. And I'm sure that there are people who could provide much more intelligent uh, and well-sourced thoughts on the why it happened. But it's, it's actually a weird blip in film history that kind of makes sense to me in terms of where, the culture and where film was at the time. Yeah, I think you're right. When you talk about the liberation movement, this was a period when it could be embraced by academics as liberating before maybe they had come around to seeing it as exploitative. I also just think it's kind of like ludicrous that people ever thought that the mere act of showing sex, like, I don't know, added some texture of artistry to it or like, I guess intensity, but I don't know. Like if you think of all of the emotional and psychological experiences you can encounter in a cinema, fear, uh, romance, thrill, tension, suspense, arousal is just not one that makes sense in a shared space and that is maybe not the intention of every movie made in this subgenre but certainly like the approximate general goal of a pornographic film and so i don't know just like it's weird to me and i would not want to go see one yeah i mean that's a fair point i think americans are still largely puritanical and so it does kind of weird us out I can't really wrap my head around going into a theater, like you're saying, with a group of people and watching this material. And I think it's telling that what burst the bubble of the golden age of porn was the rise of videotape, as we will see in this movie. Uh, because suddenly people could order their porn in a catalog sent to their house on a VHS tape that no one else would see them watching. And... People came to see that, you know, this is maybe a whole lot better. <laughs> but as depicted in the film, 
producers settled on a much cheaper model for making the films too. So maybe some of the artistry was stripped away because of that lower production cost. Sure. So this movie is an ensemble piece, I think you can say. And it has a cast that's just an embarrassment of riches. Did you see some familiar faces here, Dan? I did. This opening scene, which I think we should talk a little bit about, it just, every 40 seconds, I was like, oh my gosh, that person's in this movie? Oh my gosh, that person's in this movie? Just over and over and over again. And it didn't even stop. Like I don't think Philip Seymour Hoffman appears in that opening scene. Maybe he does, but if he did, I didn't recognize him. No, he's a little later. I was like, oh my gosh, him too? So, yeah. And, yeah, I'll let you describe some of this opening shot, but as a rule across the board, something they do really, really well in this movie is long, uncut takes. Yeah, there's like six of them that, to varying degrees, are just mind-blowing how complex and freewheeling they are. I think some of them accomplish more. Some of them feel almost like showing off, like, I could do this, so I did do this. But some of them, like, this opening one is a great one. A couple of the ones at the house that we'll see, they just do so much to enhance the experience of watching this movie in, in multiple ways. It's, first of all, just very gripping. And second of all, it really gives you a sense of the space and, like, what the people were experiencing themselves and, like, what the setting was like and just this panorama of all these people. And it really makes me impressed with the actors, too. Like, I would feel so stressed out knowing that the camera is coming through the scene and it's going to check in with each, like, pair of actors on where they're at in their arc. And it's going to go on down the line and you have to be ready. It's maybe, like, two minutes long. (laughs) And if you mess it up, they're going to have to do the whole thing again. I would be worried. Yeah. No, I, I agree. It's impressive, for sure, that they pulled it off. Just think of all the, the the number of people who have to do the right thing at the right time to make a shot like that work. Yeah, I had noticed maybe some of these. I, so this was maybe the third time I'd seen this movie, but it really struck me this time around just how many of these shots they've got, these long things. And, and usually the camera is moving, but there's somewhere that lets the actor do a long monologue without cutting. Right. Yeah. There's some really good long conversation shots for sure. So when we kick this thing off, we are in 1977 in San Fernando Valley, California. And we sweep into this nightclub and we meet some of our characters here. Uh, our protagonist is young Mark Wahlberg. Have you seen a lot of Mark Wahlberg movies? I've seen a handful. Yeah, he he's a really he's had quite the career arc because I think prior to this movie, he was best known as kind of a cheesy teen white rapper. Yeah, he was Marky Mark, Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch um, in the early '90s when. Uh, white record producers were managing to churn out acts on the wake of, you know, the whole rap scene that had evolved 
and and he was kind of one of those guys who I think maybe didn't have a reputation as like a, a serious artist. He also I've seen like four places reference him as former underwear model. So that must have been something he did as well. Uh, n- not exactly every I, I don't know if he's ever been nominated for an Academy Award or anything. I, I would guess he has at some point because he had The Departed and he also had The Fighter, I know. But that how many current underwear models out there who are going to someday be Oscar winning actors? I don't know. Right. And uh, so here he's the actor in some sense playing the underwear model. And I think the film plays a little bit with his music career, too. Yeah. But uh, he's playing a guy named Eddie Adams, who's going to take on a couple different monikers as the movie goes along. And here at the start, he's a busboy working at a nightclub. Uh, So second busboy protagonist I think we've had after uh, Bucket of Blood. Oh, yeah. Good call. Um, But one night he gets approached by Burt Reynolds, who is a porn director named Jack Horner, like the nursery rhyme. We find out that the reason he has come knocking on Mark Wahlberg's door is that this guy has a legendarily large penis. And this sets up something that's going to go the whole film that we're waiting to see Mark Wahlberg's dick. (laughs) And it's a reveal that we are constantly teased with, but don't get to see. So it's it's kind of what I thought was going to happen with the Elephant Man, based on the first ten minutes of the movie. Where, you know, we never quite see his face, but then after a little while, we finally do. This one drags it out the whole two and a half hours, yeah. Yeah, it's a different kind of Elephant Man we're waiting to see. <laughs> uh, be- before we move on from this opening scene, I think, I mean, this is in the Hall of Fame for opening shots, because it... This whole first shot, we see the whole club, we see the majority of every major character get a glimpse of their personality. And and to your point, everybody is pulling off their thing. And it's not just the main actors. There's like a whole set of extras. And you never see any like, I don't know, evidence that this is a film scene. Like, it's just crazy that they did it. And honestly, like, so what are the last three movies that we watched for this? this podcast we watched beach party we watched Cirque de Freak the vampire's assistant and we watched the Care Bears movie those are the last three that we watched so like when this started and it was like just I don't know it was like we're watching a real ass film today and I was I was happy about that it's competent (laughs) like it has artistic ambitions and you know trying to do interesting and challenging things with the medium. I was here for it, man. I was ready. You're right. That's a good point that <laughs> perhaps the films that have preceded today's entry will affect our ratings in the end. But uh, this is a good one. I, I think uh, it is perhaps prone to be spoiled in some regards. So just bear in mind now, this is going to get at least a good from me and probably from Dan. Uh, so if you're curious, go and check it out. If you do want to know more about the story, uh, stay listening now. 
But yeah, we get little blurbs here at the start from all our different characters as the camera is zooming along through this, like, disco-style nightclub. And we meet some of our characters. So Burt Reynolds is there, as I said, playing the director. He's going to be important. Uh, we've got a character named Amber Waves, played by Julianne Moore, who's sort of the veteran porn actress. Uh, you might call her a MILF, as we find out she is a mother uh, who is struggling to regain custody of her son. Don Cheadle is here as a guy named Buck Swope, who is one of the more broadly comic characters at least for most of the movie, because he's this kind of dorky guy who works as a stereo salesman, and he's trying to pick a subculture he fits well in. <laughs> and so for the first chunk of the movie, he's a black guy trying to be a cowboy. with And like, not like a cool cowboy, but like a 1950s Gene Autry singing cowboy. With a paisley shirt. Right, like Roy Rogers, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, not to spoil it, but he got some of my absolute biggest laughs of the movie, including the one moment when I like couldn't breathe from laughing, and that is at a, a party. It's, I think, a New Year's party we'll talk about in a bit, and it just does like a smash cut to him sitting in a chair, and he's got on this most ridiculous outfit and wig you've ever seen. And given like the context that we have that he's struggling to find his right look, it, it just very much tickled my funny bone. Everything about this character was great, I thought. Yeah, he's sitting there alone with his dreadlock wig and this like rhinestone jacket. <laughs> <laughs> just with this hangdog look on his face. Got, like straps of leather hanging off of it. It's just the ridiculous. I want that outfit. I wanna I don't know. It works yeah. for him though. That's when he yeah. he meets his uh, his girlfriend. That's true. That that's the irony to it. Yeah, this movie does a lot of like setup and payoff and like twisting your expectations. And despite being two and a half hours, a lot of things end up mattering to other things that happen. Yeah, everybody gets an arc. Uh, we've got William H Macy playing Burt Reynolds' assistant director. A guy everybody is always calling Little Bill. <laughs> and his thing is that he's constantly getting cuckolded by his wife. He's just always walking into the scene. Hey, where's my wife? And then he will find her having sex with someone who's not him. And even more broadly, it's just that nobody appreciates him. Nobody likes him. He's always like annoying and in the way and not doing stuff right. And he just... You know, it's William H. Macy. He, that's exactly the air that he gives or that he can easily give. And I watched the movie Fargo less than two weeks ago. And so I was able to see <laughs> uh, a lot of character similarities between these two, uh, especially without spoiling it, that he might get desperate at some point. Definitely. So behind the scenes of our podcast, I've been teasing that I was going to assign Boogie Nights and, and probably while the mics were rolling a couple times for like months now this has been on the table for a while when i was trying to describe to dan why i liked this one or or what this movie was like the best description i came up with was it makes me feel the way fargo does 
<laughs> which is that a story that starts out kind of silly with sinister elements kind of shifts gradually into a sinister story that still has some silly elements. And of course, William H. Macy is here embodying that. Definitely. And we've got a few other characters. Um, Louise Guzman is the guy who runs the club. And he, at the start, is continually pestering the porn producers. Hey, you guys make movies, sexy movies, and you hang out at my club. So, hey, how about you put me in a sexy movie? Which I think if I knew any of these people, I would probably be doing the same thing. So, <laughs> glad that he's he's going for it. Shoot your shot, yeah. Yeah. There's also a character referred to as Roller Girl, who is one of the star actresses with the uh, porn filmmakers. Uh, she's played by an actress named Heather Graham. And she is always on roller skates. So they make use of her rolling through the scenes in a lot of these never-ending takes. They'll, like, follow her as she skates through past some new group of people. Extra impressive that she managed to keep her balance and dexterity on these long takes. Totally. Pretty early on, we see Roller Girl drop out of school. and She's taken a test, and it's not going well, and she just heads out and Horner uses her to approach Eddie again Mark Wahlberg saying hey you know you turned me down before but you have this enormous cock so please come work for me and hey you can have sex with this girl if you do and that tactic works yeah I think one issue I had with this movie um, early, especially the first half hour, and I would say basically up until about the first half hour, is that the Mark Wahlberg character, we've talked a little bit about self-insert characters where like, it's just a wish-fulfillment version of what the director imagines they would want to be in this universe. And that is exactly what the Mark Wahlberg character is. Like, He doesn't really have much personality except he's like, confident but lovable but also humble and everybody wants a piece of him and oh he happens to be the most well endowed and sexually gifted person in all of the whole porn valley and i don't know it was a little much for me at first but um there definitely comes to be more shading to his character as the film goes yeah i would say it didn't bother me because he has this absolute harpy of a mother and also as we'll come to see this is not really a glorious line of work. Like, coming into this movie, the only thing I knew about it was that it was about the porno chic period, as I said. And so I was kind of expecting it to glorify that era and that lifestyle. And if it does it at all, it's not for very long. So things are things are going to go south for most of these characters in... At least in some regards. Yeah. It's like uh, it's like Pleasure Island and Pinocchio. They're, they're going to get turned into donkeys. So another thing that... Again, this is not really like a negative, but it was like a impact on my viewing experience and it was maybe a mixed thing, is 
this movie projects pretty early that it is going to be a rise then fall structure that we are all well acquainted with. You know, every gangster movie has the you start out small, then you rise, then you get the hubris and the burnout, and then you fall in terrible fashion. And plenty of other movies do it too. Biopics often have something like that. I'm thinking like Walk the Line. Yeah, I was going to say, it kind of feels like a biopic. But there are plenty of surprises within, and that I just, I was savoring, but also kind of dreading the good times because I knew it was going to turn turn dark at some point, or suspected it would at least. This is not a Linklater movie where they're just going to be hanging out and partying the whole time. Although they do put a lot of effort into the production design. There's That's a lot true. of lush yeah. and terrible... 70s architecture and fashions. I mean, honestly, Linklater is not that bad a comparison. I'm thinking of when we talked about Everybody Wants Some, the attention to detail on the 80s period stuff. I mean, Boogie Nights absolutely has and probably surpasses for its its 70s details. Late 70s, I guess, early 80s. So Mark Wahlberg is in the stable of actors now with Jack Horner's production company. And... We get a pretty good monologue from Burt Reynolds where he lays out the vision of sort of the porno chic ideal because he says his dream is that he wants to make an adult film so engaging that people have to stay, I think he says, stewing in their juices (laughs) until the end of the movie because the story is so engaging and the acting is compelling. So he he wants to make a porno with a story. <laughs> it's it's really interesting when he first he being uh, Mark Wahlberg's character first joins this. I mean, I think he ends up living at that house and and kind of joins the stable of actors. It provides a contrast to the mom that you mentioned. I really feel like that mom character. Like I get the point where it's trying to like contrast. Hey, his real family was cruel and the porn group was basically his new family. But I feel like the mom character and his family prior to it is something left over from like an earlier version of the screenplay where we had a lot more of his backstory prior to getting into the industry. It's just like that character had no development and all of a sudden went off the deep end. Yeah. What is her deal? She just yells at him and harangues him in this really awful scene where she's like ripping all his stuff off the walls and telling him that he doesn't own anything because he didn't pay for it and how he's got to get out of her house. Yeah, I don't know. And then we never check back in with him at all. So it's like, but you know, (laughs) now that we're talking about it together, you know what it makes me think of is the structure of Cirque de Freak the Vampire's assistant (laughs) because he's going to leave his family after one scene, after we haven't really met them or attached with them at all. And go off and live with a group of freaks uh, with John C. Riley prominently featured. <laughs> I like it. Because now, yes, he's living at Burt Reynolds' house with this group of porn actors. And we get another great long shot where Burt Reynolds says, I want you to meet some great people. And he's kind of leading him around this fantastic 70s house. Think like a little Playboy mansion with a pool 
And again, we're checking in with all of this whole group of characters as the camera sweeps around. And we get an extended conversation when Mark Wahlberg meets this character named Reed Rothschild, who is John C. Riley in the goofy best friend role. I was getting serious stepbrother vibes where he was kind of a little bit of a man child in like a place where you would expect someone to be more grown up and mature doing some similar shtick. He even has nunchucks at some point later in the movie, which gets referenced multiple times in Step Brothers. But man, I love John C. Riley in this. He was so funny. Yeah, I've considered at one point doing a surprise John C. Riley month <laughs> where you get a ways into the movie and suddenly you're surprised to see that John C. Riley is there. Would be always a pleasant surprise for me. Yeah, we may have some more entries that uh, fit that theme because I'm definitely a fan. Uh, he does at least look like he works out here. He's he's pretty physically fit. I mean, he's still got the same doughy, potato sack face, <laughs> but he's got some some trim firmness to his upper body that I will pay kudos where they're due. Yeah, in better shape than we've seen him elsewhere. Right. This sh- this shot at the party also gives us our first encounter with the dark side of this, the extravagance of the porn industry. When we meet at kind of the beginning of the shot, this young woman who looks like she's no older than 18, and we keep crossing paths with her, and we see her start to do cocaine, and then a scene later we see her completely OD'd on the floor. Yeah, just a bloody mess. Right. I've uh, I've never done cocaine. This movie doesn't make it look appealing. No, no. That's one I'm going to stay away from. Uh, we also learn around this point that the guy that Jack Horner works for, sort of, is this producer character, the bankroller, who's referred to as the colonel. He's just this old dude who I guess has got money that he's throwing at the projects. Uh, but he tends to be the one bringing these young women to the parties, like the one who just OD'd. I don't know if it's this party shot or just another party shot soon after, but one of these long takes, they even follow the actors into the pool. Like, Mark Wahlberg jumps into the pool, and the camera just dives in down underneath, and now we're seeing everybody underwater. That blew my mind. That that bowled me over. I don't even know how you do that. I feel like you would need different lenses and stuff to shoot underwater, but it looks good underwater too. So, and if you did that without computers, that's pretty crazy. Yeah, with that one, I was like, okay, dude, you're showing off now. (laughs) But by and large, I mean, this is a movie about making movies, which tends to rate well with like the Academy. They tend to like those, but so do I. So... Now we've got a a group of people who are going to be making movies together. What did you think of the soundtrack? So I like ambitious and busy soundtracks in general. Um, And this one had some absolutely killer needle drops. It got a little cutesy at times, I thought, where it would be like, hey, we're going to give you this unexpected song to completely change the texture of the scene. In a way that didn't really feel organic. It felt kind of, I don't know, forced. And like, he, again, he was showing off and how he can manipulate the nature of the, the film. 
But in general, I thought it was quite good. I know it has a reputation for being quite good. Yeah. And towards the end, some of it is even diegetic and there's like discussion of what the sound, what a soundtrack to your day-to-day life means to you. Right. Almost like uh, American Psycho with the hip to be square. You know, there's like a hip, edgy moment of violence where they're pause and they're talking about the music they like to listen to. That's a good connection for sure. Late in the the drug deal, late in the movie is what I assume you're thinking of. Yeah, that's the one. Uh, We get another scene where William H. Macy is being cuckolded. And he's talking to the camera guy, the cinematographer, about how egregious this is that it's going on just out outside. There's like a whole crowd of people standing around watching. And the cinematographer just wants to talk about work. Like, hey, man, do you think you can find some room in the budget for this new lens that I want? And he's like, dude, I don't want to talk about this right now because my wife is having public sex with someone who's not me. And this is one more conversation that just goes on and on. But I think it's notable because it's the one time I noticed a mistake in one of these long shots. Yeah. I've heard this line outside of the context of the movie. So I was like, oh, that's where that's from. Because one of the things that William H. Macy yells out, he says, my wife has an ass in her cock in the driveway. (laughs) And I assume he meant a cock in her ass. So I haven't verified this. I would put money down that this was not scripted this way. But as soon as he made that mistake... They were like, okay, that's staying in. Because it really fits with the character in the moment, too, because he's really flustered. So right, I bet that it, ha- it was a slip of the tongue, and and they had to include it. Yeah. Or they just didn't want to make everybody line up again. It makes you wonder how many takes they did of some of those shots. For real, yeah. Like, I feel like you would do at least one, but how long does it take to set that up, get everybody in their position... Like you probably have to rehearse it some. I don't know, man. It's wild. And as they're queuing up some of these film scenes, we come to meet the Philip Seymour Hoffman character who is named Scotty. Uh, he works as like the boom operator and the slate operator. And I think this is true of many Philip Seymour Hoffman characters, but he is just so off-putting. <laughs> He's just a really creepy guy. Part of it is like, I don't know, when he plays an austere gentleman, he kind of looks like a slightly chubby, austere gentleman. But when he plays anything other than that, and even when he does that, he's got an off-putting air to him sometimes. But like what here, he's like a California sunshine, long blonde hair, gay boy, always wearing super tight clothes. It is just a very bizarre look. But he's also got a gut hanging out of his pants. Yeah. And yeah, super tight shirt on top of that. So that's a weird combo. And then he's got this haircut that's like the berries and cream lad from the Starburst commercials. Like a, like a, just a, I mean, I guess it's like a surfer haircut, but it kind of sticks out at the side. Like it definitely was making me think of the little lad, but he immediately falls in love with Eddie, the Mark Wahlberg character. And in short order, uh, Mark Wahlberg is actually going to take on his first 
of a couple aliases because the, all the porn stars tell him, you know, you don't want to use your real name when you're making porn. You need a, a cool star name, a stage name. And he decides he wants to be called Dirk Diggler. <laughs> I think it's a great name. I mean, I it it sounds like a porn star's name. It sounds iconic. He, he, he gets to name various characters throughout the movie. Every name that he comes up with, I'm, I was thinking, that's a great name. This guy knows, like, he talks about how he has a gift, and he's talking about his ability, talent at having sex. I think he's also got a gift, and that is coming up with names for people that fit that what that person needs to be. Yeah, and anytime he names somebody, people will, like, pause and react to how good the name is. But now he's Dirk Diggler, and he's going to be porn star Dirk Diggler. And notable, he he intentionally tells people to just call him Dirk. He he's not Eddie Adams. He's Dirk Diggler now. That's that's just who he is. I thought it was interesting that when we finally see the whole team together making a porn scene, like the instant the camera starts rolling, we move from a space where everything has been masterfully crafted as far as the movie is going. All these powerhouse performances, fantastic cinematography and editing. And suddenly we see through the camera this film within a film. And all the acting is suddenly wooden. <laughs> the film is grainy and poorly lit. And it's just a, a funny contrast. Oh, I mean, there's this this absolutely masterful cut when it happens. Like, the one they should be studying in film school, it's so good. You kind of have this long cut of Mark Wahlberg prepping for the scene, and he, like, walks in and he starts talking with Julianne Moore's character, and then it, without missing a beat, cuts to what we're seeing in the camera. And you're absolutely right. It is, like, astonishing how flat it looks. It just looks two-dimensional. It looks so bad. And compare that to like the floating camera of the rest of the movie. It is a like a smash cut joke that works so well. And yeah, all of a sudden the actors, when they're acting, are emotionless and they're tripping over their lines. <laughs> but this is a time when we get teased again. Because Mark Wahlberg takes off his pants in the film, and that's when we cut to seeing the filmmakers' reactions to seeing <laughs> his endowment. And, you know, William H. Macy's jaw drops, and Philip Seymour Hoffman, who's got this crush on Dirk, is like, just can, can't control himself. He's just like drooling. <laughs> and... Uh, Julianne Moore in the movie, in the film that they're making, her she's like a talent scout or something that she's playing. And she says, I need to check something. And she looks down and she says, this is a giant cock. <laughs> Good reference to the bad puns turned not even into puns that you, you stereotypically think of in this era of porn. Yeah, but they go back to showing off their, like, real filmmaking chops when we get a shot where somehow we go inside the camera 
and this was trippy. I, I don't know. It's like you go down inside the lens and you see the image upside down on the lens at the back of the physical camera. And like you see the film going through all the gears. Yeah, this to me, that was P.T. Anderson showing off a little bit. Like, look how look what I can do and how thought provoking it is. I didn't really get what the point of it was. I was with you on that. But it certainly was cool to look at. No, I just thought it was neat. We get a biopic-style meteoric rise now as Dirk is climbing the charts, becoming a breakout smash porn star. And he's got more money than he's had before. So (laughs) he goes on this materialistic shopping spree and we just get a cavalcade of awful 70s fashions that he's super proud of everything that he's buying, even if he doesn't really understand it. He's talking about how he's got imported Italian nylon. (laughs) He does like this Cribs style tour where he's showing people around his house and all the stuff that he's bought. And we get some funny cuts. Uh, At one point he just points to a beanbag chair and he says, that's a beanbag. And it cuts (laughs) away to something else. I I like this. It was a good chance to show off all the the fun period details. This is also around the time that we get a dance party segment, like at a disco or something like a disco. And it made me think of everybody wants some, cause it was a really well lit and staged dance scene that just made me want to hop in and be at that bar. And it's another scene that goes on for a while. So everybody had to hit these dance moves and it's just the whole ensemble dancing together and having a good time. Right. I liked seeing John C. Riley bust his disco dance moves. Yeah. He he was good at it. They were all good at it. We see the fun clothes. They have like a, a scene of them shopping for this ridiculous 70s and 80s clothes. And some pretty slick editing when people are reading a newspaper review of Dirk Diggler's performance. And presumably this is some kind of porn focused publication like i don't know penthouse or something i don't really keep up with porn journalism but uh just multiple people like burt reynolds and heather graham and julian moore all reading this article and it's cutting back and forth between their voices and we just get like little frame within a frame picture within a picture shots of the mounting success and like little bits of the films and I thought it was put together well. And it all gets capped with this disco dance. Uh, round about this time, as they are ascendant, Dirk and Reed Rothschild, John C. Riley, pull Burt Reynolds aside. And they say that they've come up with the concept, finally, for this narrative film that Horner wants to make. You know, the director early on said he wants to make a story film that's going to keep people engaged. And Dirk Diggler has come up with a solution. He says they're going to make a series of James Bond-inspired spy adult films. (laughs) They're going to feature a star named Brock Landers. And that's going to be played by Dirk Diggler, played by Eddie Adams, played by Mark Wahlberg. But his sidekick is going to be uh, Reed Rothschild as Chest Rockwell. (laughs) 
I like it. Chest. I'm not sure about that, but I, like I don't it. think you can have Chest be a first name. I'm, I don't know. I think that's a stretch, but he says it with such enthusiasm. I got to give it to him. Right. His partner is Chest Rockwell. To me, this was another Step Brothers reminiscent moment. I'm just imagining John C. Riley and Will Ferrell like, oh, we'll, make, we'll be James Bond heroes and like practicing their karate moves and stuff. Like it's very much playing up that they just want to be cool action guys too. Cause that's another thing with Dirk Diggler's character early on is like, we see his bedroom and he's like into Kung Fu and cool action stuff. So, you know, he's just like a goofy kid at heart too. But these actually take off and they're popular. And we see Dirk Diggler cleaning up at several years worth of adult film awards I don't know what these are actually called on Family Guy. It said they're called the Woodies, and I hope that's true. (laughs) Uh, But uh, these really exist in some capacity, or they did at some point. I read a uh, an article by man, what's that guy's name? I get his name mixed up with Philip Seymour Hoffman, another three name guy who died young. He wrote Infinite Jest. David Foster Wallace. So I read a David Foster Wallace essay one time about the quote-unquote Oscars of porn. I think it's called the AVNs. The I don't know what it stands for, but I think it's AVN uh, Awards. And it was at the time, it was something like it's 11th one. So it's probably, if it's still running, it's probably in its like 20s now or something. Yeah, and back in Dirk Diggler's day, it's, it's like two and three. And it, it could be, you know, maybe a change to the adult video and had been the adult film. Sure. But uh, this is early on. But everything kind of goes through a sea change at the advent of the 80s. Literally, there's a New Year's Eve party, New Year's Eve 1979. And they're talking about how it's going to be the 1980s. And so many big things happen at this party. It's like, I wonder (laughs) would so many dramatic moments actually occur. But... Things are coming to a head now, and if you are concerned about spoilers, this is maybe the time when you want to tune out, because there's just a waterfall of important stuff. Uh, This guy shows up, a businessman. I've seen this actor before. I feel like he might have been the boss on Men in Black, but I don't know the actor's name. I should have looked it up, Uh, but he comes to the party to pitch Burt Reynolds on switching formats to videotape he says hey you know you can reach people through a by mail market you don't have to worry about theaters anymore this is the way of the future burt reynolds at the time kind of laughs him out of his office we also have a friend of john c Riley show up this guy's name is todd parker and he's just kind of there to embody the drug scene it almost becomes like a cartoonish PSA in some ways. It's like, oh no, this is the friend who's going to say, hey man, you want to try some grass? <laughs> yeah, I saw him as like an over-the-top bro. Like, kind of what Mark Wahlberg and John C. Riley might be if they were a little bit more arrogant. And if they had a little bit more of a pretty boy aspect to them. Because one of his things is he's like a, he's a male stripper. And so he is used to being adorned with attention and being like 
a cool guy hotshot. And I think that feeds into everything we see about him. I think you're onto something saying that he's what Dirk and Reed could be and maybe what they're about to become in some ways. Scotty puts the moves on Dirk out in the parking lot because, I mean, you know, New Year's Eve, that's when you got to try to kiss somebody. (laughs) So he uh, owns up about his crush in just the most off-putting... I mean, he just... He, j- he tries to kiss and does kiss Mark Wahlberg, and Mark Wahlberg obviously is not into it. Ugh, just a painful moment for everybody involved. Yeah. I mean, this was obviously the reason that they hired him to be this role, because he just acts the shit out of his embarrassment, his humiliation. He has this moment in the car when he's repeating over and over again, I'm a fucking idiot, fucking idiot, fucking idiot. And he's doing his Philip Seymour Hoffman cry. And by God, could that man act like I was choking up watching him being humiliated. Yeah, I felt really I felt really bad for him. Uh, Like, I mean, it's like it's a two edged thing. It's like you feel bad for him, but also it's like you brought this on yourself. But then I don't know, I, I saw some of myself in the awful Philip Seymour Hoffman character and and felt both types of ways about my own experiences. Oh, I, I mean, totally. I think that's part of the the way that the acting and the writing comes t- together on that is like you simultaneously know the unrequited feeling, but also like you, I don't know, feel like you're close or feel like you're almost there, but it's still unrequited. And then you take your shot and it goes bad and he just brings you through that experience and makes you feel it. And this is just the night of big events because we also have little Bill, William H. Macy, finally snapping. He stumbles on the wife, cuckling him again. And wouldn't you know it, in a long take, he makes his way to the back of the house, sees that happening comes back out through a big party, goes out to his car, he grabs a pistol, and he heads back in, and he kills the wife, the lover, and himself. And we get just a smash cut to a title card that says 1980. Yeah, this this shot blew my mind in part because it was like abrupt violence when we had not really had too much of that in this movie so far. I mean, I guess we had the one girl who deed and we kind of abruptly saw that but like the way that it follows him you get just enough of a look into the bedroom that you know exactly what he's seen it's like the fourth time in the movie that we've seen him be feeling humiliated by his wife cheating on him in public and he just nonchalantly walks to the car grabs the pistol comes back and boom 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 And like, as he's walking back, like the tension is mounting. Is he actually going to do it? And this was like a breathtaking moment for me. Right. When I watched this movie the first time, this was what really elevated it for me. (laughs) I did not expect this at all going in. And as we go along, we'll get maybe one or two more moments kind of like this. Where, like I said early on, we've gone from the kind of silly story with some shady elements to a, a dark story 
that is maybe still going to have some funny elements. It's interesting that it basically all hinges on this one night. Like one thing this movie does a few times is it has, and you kind of already alluded to this. It has almost in a contrivance. It has a lot of things happen at the same time. Like a lot of changes to character arcs happen, you know, given this movie spans something like eight years. It's interesting how like you look at five specific nights and that kind of defines the arcs of everyone in some ways. Yeah, I agree. Let's see. Because we do kind of jump ahead a couple times in short order. Uh, shortly after the 80s began, the colonel who had been bankrolling everything to do with Jack Horner's operation gets arrested. Uh, I guess the cops arrest him initially because he's involved... Uh, with another OD case, another young girl uh, ODs on coke. But then while they're raiding his place, they find child porn. And that's going to put a damper on things, you know, in any case. So he's obviously not providing money to the operation anymore. And so to keep going, Burt Reynolds has to go into business with the video guy. You know, oh no, shame. Video. Uh, not, not, don't worry about being involved with the child pornographer. The real ignominious thing is having to swallow your pride and shoot on video. I, I will say this movie goes out of its way to make sure that we know that this movie know, knows that the colonel is a villain in this case. Right. Nobody feels sympathy towards him. Once we get this revelation. That's true. And in fact, there's like this dramatic and well done scene where the Burt Reynolds character is talking to the colonel at a prison. And basically the colonel's like, you're still my friend, man. You're still my friend. And Burt Reynolds cuts off the phone. And we still see the colonel mouthing that same thing over and over again. But it's clear that Burt Reynolds has has cut the colonel off. That actually is interesting to me. Um, when... I don't know. I, maybe I, I could save this for like some overarching thoughts, but what it struck me that this movie, you said, I kind of agree with this. It, it humanizes, but does, doesn't idealize them. But like fundamentally, other than the Colonel, basically everyone that we deal with is like a good person deep down and like is operating in good faith and good conscience and good behavior in this whole enterprise which I don't know, like the line between pornography and exploitation is so thin a line that that felt a little bit whitewashed almost. Like obviously we see lots of bad stuff happen, but this movie was very generous towards its main characters overall. And I felt like we were still getting like a nice version of what the porn industry actually looked like. Maybe we're still not too far from circus month. That's true, yeah. We're still dealing with an exploitative enterprise. Yeah, there's and there's like it doesn't show anything in terms of like I don't know, sexual assaults or like abusing drugs to manipulate women or like totally messed up gender roles in like enforcing the power of the men against the women, which I I don't know, I just feel like has to be baked into this industry to some extent. I also thought it was interesting that 
you know, we're heading into the 1980s now and we're getting towards darker subject matter and, oh, what is going to bring down the golden age of porn? I thought for sure they were going to talk about AIDS and they never bring it up in the movie. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't think about that. But you're absolutely right. It feels like that would have been a, a big thing. Although I feel like... I mean, I mean, that was more of a gay thing. Exactly. That AIDS was first coming onto the public consciousness. I feel like that was pretty contained to the homosexual culture. Sure. But, I mean, when their whole thing is having sex with many different people in, like, maybe not the safest scenarios... I thought it would at least get a mention. I was wait I was waiting for it and and you never hear it. That's interesting, yeah. I wonder if that was ever in any of his drafts. This movie comes out to a little over two and a half hours. One thing I read on the production of it is that he originally had a script for well over three hours version of the film, and it seems like that got chopped up a little bit. I wonder if that was ever gonna be a a subject matter item. Yeah, I feel like it could almost be like a mini series or something or right we jump ahead again until it's like 1982 and people are kind of settling into their new roles uh, we get that party that you mentioned where buck the don Cheadle character is in his goofy wig and uh, manages to hit it off with one of the actresses and they're gonna have one of the more wholesome relationships in this later act of the film they're gonna start a family together um but we also see that as the characters are getting more into drug use especially um the julianne moore character and then dirk and his friends are getting into cocaine and maybe some other stuff uh that that's going to lead them down a darker path and it's certainly going to put them on edge because dirk starts getting intimidated when he sees that Jack is starting to court some younger actors. A couple episodes back, we mentioned the the look. Dan called it a known look from Titanic, where when you see a rival, the look that they are an insect, a dangerous insect who must be crushed quickly. We said that uh, it's the look that uh, Barnum's wife gives to Jenny Lind. Well, now that's the look that Dirk Diggler is giving to so-called Johnny Doe. Just this young dude that Burt Reynolds is showing around now. And someone who doesn't have the same aptitude for coming up with names that Mark Wahlberg's character does. No, it's like the first uh, alias you would come up with. Dirk Diggler says his name is sharp enough to cut glass. And uh, Johnny Doe is not that. Messing around with drugs also starts to affect Dirk's performance, though. You know, his one signature thing, suddenly he's finding he can't become erect. And that's obviously going to cause problems in his work. Right, because one of the early things in the movie that that sets up Wahlberg as a star, uh, or Dirk Diggler as a star, is that not only does he have endowment but he has the ability to perform with it with frequency and reliability, it is suggested. Yeah, he's just always ready to go again, early on. Right. And here, that's definitely not true. And so the drugs and the stress of the young actor lead him to blow up at Burt Reynolds, saying, you know, 
you need me more than I need you because I have the monster dong. Uh, but Burt Reynolds doesn't take too kindly to that and throws him out. Right, this fight goes on for what felt like five minutes. It just kept going and going between them. And my favorite line was he said something. Burt Reynolds says, I can't film you in the state you're in. And Mark Wahlberg says, the state I'm in? What, California? You think I don't know where I am? I thought that was a good line. And wouldn't you know it, this whole thing is also like three shots. Right. And for whatever reason, Reed and Scotty go off with Dirk. Like, Dirk's the one who's fired, but they stick with him out of loyalty. I'm not sure Reed actually has an arc in this movie. He's just like the doofy, slightly competitive, but good best friend character. Well, his arc is that he mentions a couple times that he likes to do magic, and we see him do some magic tricks, and later on we see that that pays off in some respect. That's true. I suppose he does have that professional arc. And I mean, he he is the happy-go-lucky guy, so he doesn't yeah. have to struggle as much as some people. He he gets to stay happy. Which, I, I like to see John C. Riley happy. Me uh, too. Be- better than in... <laughs> Surprise John C. Riley contender, we need to talk about Kevin, where he plays the dad who the whole movie along is telling Tilda Swinton, oh, our son isn't a serial killer. And then at the end, he gets pumped full of arrows and we just see John C. Riley's corpse. Uh, we don't get that here. Um, but now Dirk is out of Horner's operation. Time moves forward and we see that the industry is rolling along without Dirk. We get some more video productions uh, starring, of course, this weak Diggler wannabe Johnny Doe, who in short order has his own knockoff series from the Brock Landers character. This is Rock Harders. And of course, Johnny Doe would come up with the worse name. (laughs) Right. Well, especially because one of Dirk Diggler's thing is he's repeatedly saying, rock on, man, like rocking, rocking hard as like something that Dirk Diggler talks about. So it makes him feel like even more of a cheap knockoff. And we see that Buck is struggling too, Don Cheadle. Uh, He has dreams of going straight. Uh, His side gig we see early on is that he has worked at a stereo store. He's all about installing hi-fis. That's what he knows about. That's what he likes to do. And so he says he's got, you know, the knowledge base and the industry connections that he could start his own stereo store. But he has trouble getting a loan at the bank because they know that, you know, his day-to-day job is being involved in pornography, which is illicit and seedy. And no, we're not going to get in business with a pornographer. Yeah, I felt bad for him here. At this point, John Cheadle hasn't done anything to make you root against him or to make you have hesitations about him as anything other than a stand-up dude. In fact, like the earnestness with which he carries himself and his self-exploration, the fact that he's latched on to selling stereos makes you just want to root for him here. Yeah, he's got a charm, whether he's a cowboy or a whatever the Jerry Curl wig <laughs> dude is going for or a, a b-boy... You want to see him find something that's going to work for him. We get a couple acts where 
it's like intercut scenes between the different characters struggling. And that's the theme that holds it together, even though we're jumping from place to place, is this, uh, this dark spiral. We see that Buck is getting shot down for his loan at the bank. Uh, we see Amber Waves, the Julianne Moore character, and the Roller Girl are doing a bunch of coke together. Talking about how they, you know, Roller Girl doesn't have a mother figure, and Julianne Moore doesn't have access to her child, and how they're kind of trying to find that relationship in each other. And meanwhile, we're cutting between those two, and we're also seeing Dirk and Reed at a recording studio, trying to begin a record career. This subplot was, I think, pretty unnecessary, but just so hilarious. Mark Wahlberg really leans into being a bad musician, like to a self-deprecating degree. And it it reminded me of probably my favorite John C. Riley movie, which is Walk Hard. Good to see him in a recording studio. Yeah, because he's joining on the the guitar, yeah, jamming along, and like he believes in the spirit of the music they're doing. I, I like the enthusiasm he has for their artistic endeavor <laughs> because eventually they don't have money left to pay to actually purchase the recordings they've made from the studio and yeah we get this impassioned plea from john c Riley of why you know the the tapes they belong to you they they are your property but the magic the magic that's on those tapes, that belongs to us, and we need to get it to the record studio. Uh, but they don't get to. I would buy that record. <laughs> I hope it's out there somewhere. I hope that the soundtrack for this movie has, like, the Dirk Diggler cover of The Touch. <laughs> and this dark intercut act is followed by an even darker series of intercut scenes because Christmas rolls around and this is where everybody's at their lowest point because without any money Dirk turns to sort of uh, I guess it's prostitution except the one act we see is somebody rolls up and just like Burt Reynolds at the start of the movie says hey I'll give you money to show me your dick and it's like I mean if you had to be a prostitute this is like the least degrading form you could possibly have. Right. I, I agree. That was, to me, it was another example of uh, letting us feel the lows, but without degrading its main characters too much. Right. Uh, but another bit that we're cutting to is one of the video productions where Burt Reynolds is going around in a limo with roller girl in the back and the premise is they're going to find some rando on the street and bring him into the car to have sex with her man i gotta say i've i've wanted to run into the cash cab before but like if there's a sex cab out there like oh what are what are we missing out on (laughs) how many different types of cabs can you have yeah it's like someday man it's like, someday one of those calves is going to find me. That's the, that's the dream. This is Burt Reynolds keeping the dream alive. <laughs> Except it, it doesn't go very well for them. No. 
uh, because we're gonna get some some violence suddenly in the mix again because somebody recognizes Roller Girl. Suddenly the veil of the stage name is pierced. So not not only does that happen, but he also calls Burt Reynolds' films shit. Oh, your films are no good. And so this dual insult, they beat this guy down and leave him in a bloody heap on the sidewalk. And uh, Dirk also gets beaten by this group who, I guess, aren't down with him doing gay prostitution on the corner. So I, I think they have their own issues to sort out, this group of dudes who come to beat on him. Yeah, I was wondering what was up with that. Like, what's their whole thing? Hey, we're going to go find people who covertly offer gay sex acts to those who need it. And we're going to, like, go through the process of tracking them down, partaking in the sex act, or at least being witness to it, and then beat them up and steal $10 from their pocket. Like, I don't really know what the racket is there. <laughs> yeah, it's like, wow, it's, it's really gay to do gay stuff in the alley. Isn't that right? Other dudes doing gay stuff in this alley? Yeah, high five. <laughs> so, a strange dynamic among these guys. Everybody's at their low point now. And of course, we can't forget about Buck. So, <laughs> Buck has just been turned down for his loan. And this whole, like, five to ten minute scene, series of scenes where everybody's getting roughed up and there's just dark, violent stuff going on, there's this bell tolling. Just this chiming of a church bell where all throughout the whole two hours leading up to this, we've had, you know, pop songs and disco. Now it's just this bong, bong, bong. Yeah, I noticed that too. It's very striking and puts you on edge. It wraps up just as Buck steps into a donut shop to sort of lighten the mood i guess that he and his girlfriend have just been shot down at the bank but he is gonna set things right by buying some donuts i think he's actually it's pretty clear that his wife is pregnant or sorry his girlfriend is pregnant and it's like a craving you know he's helping his wife satisfy her cravings for like it's she lists like four different types of donuts she wants which is very adorable in itself and just further emphasizes that the Don Cheadle character is the most wholesome character in this film. Right. And this scene is the one that, like, I just want to put in another notice. Spoilers here. Because <laughs> this is one that blew my mind when I saw it the first time. Uh, so if you have not uh, been totally spoiled yet, uh, step away now. Uh, also, I've heard people compare this film to Pulp Fiction. And this scene is maybe where I saw that the most. I think that's astute. The way that random violence is going to alter the trajectory of Don Cheadle's life, like just an instant of almost absurd violence is very Tarantino-esque. Because what happens is while Don Cheadle is picking out his donuts, a robber runs into the donut shop and holds up the clerk. And then, yes, in an instant, 
there's a patron in the back of the donut shop, a good old boy, a guy who's reading a hunting magazine. And of course, this is the moment he's been waiting for. <laughs> he has just been waiting his whole life for a robber to run into a place that he is so that he can pull out his own gun. He shoots the robber. The robber reflexively shoots back, killing the guy in the booth. And then the guy in the booth reflexively shoots back, blowing the back of the head off the clerk. And just spraying blood and brains all over Don Cheadle. Right. Who was not expecting this. Right. The makeup is really good on this because just the blood and there's like viscera for sure. Oh, and Don Cheadle wore a white suit to the bank. Oh, yeah. So good. Uh, But... The clerk has just opened the safe up for the robber. So now there's a miraculously not blood-spattered sack full of bills sitting in front of Don Cheadle now. You know, he hasn't done anything wrong so far. He is owed a good turn of events. I I do kind of wonder how this uh, interaction with his wife played out. That he's going to step out just covered with brains all over his white suit and be like hey honey everything's turning up don Cheadle." i gotta like it's essentially like a dollar sign bag you know like here's enough riches to make our dreams come true (laughs) let's go home and shower first though i was wondering like whenever the cops actually investigated this what would their take on the situation be like they would go in, they would see three dead people. They would fairly quickly observe that there's no money in the safe or the cash register. What would they think? Would they think that whoever it was who walked away with the money was the initial villain? Or I don't know. I, I would. I want to see a spinoff of this that's a detective trying to piece some of these cases together. Yeah, hard to say. And I mean, we know that video exists now. So do places have cameras? We We don't really know. Maybe not donut stores yet. I would say probably not at this point, given that, you know, it's still controversial to ship commercial products on videos, according to this movie. Right. Then we get an act that I think if there's one weakness of the film, we might not need this act. The title card literally says one last thing, which also felt kind of Tarantino-y. Like, to have title cards at all felt like a Tarantino thing. Sure, yeah. Uh, but this is where Todd Parker gets his big moment and leads Dirk and Reed in an attempt to defraud a drug dealer. They're going to fill up a bag with baking soda and say it's Coke and try to sell it to this bigwig in what I thought of as a very Breaking Bad scene because I filter all my media through my appreciation of Breaking Bad, even if it <laughs> came after whatever i'm talking about uh but you know it's it's gonna be a tense scene where they try to pull the wool over a drug dealer's eyes and this is where we get kind of the american psycho moment where the guy he's just been handed the bag of fake drugs but he's more concerned with talking about his music tastes and hey guys did you know they got this thing now where you can use cassette tapes and you can record whatever songs you want. It's called a mixtape, and it's going to revolutionize music. 
I I did kind of like this just snapshot of a moment in media history. Yeah, I have felt similarly spiritual about the artistic possibilities of mixtapes at various points in my life. Although maybe not quite as crazed and intensive as this guy. He, he talks about how, man, bands come out with albums and they want you to listen to the songs in that order. I hate that. I want to listen in the order that I want. And all throughout this interaction, there's this Chinese guy walking around in the background setting off firecrackers. Which is very weird, but, you know, it adds to the tenseness of everything because there will just be big explosions and we find out pretty quickly that multiple people in the scene have guns so it's like a Chekhov's fake out because you know eventually these guns are gonna go off and you're waiting for it but meanwhile you have all these random explosions I just I couldn't decide if this actually was the best scene in the movie or if it was just like the weirdest scene in the movie but you're totally right it absolutely nails the every time the firecracker goes off, it jolts you, it it jars you, it disrupts the narrative and conversational flow. And I, I love, by the way, I love John C. Riley. He like has a great startle at basically every single one. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. And I was just cracking up and enjoying him. Exactly. He gets to do his like Steve Brule double take <laughs> from Tim and Eric where he's like, huh. And it just like his hair and his forehead skin shakes around. Yeah. Like a clown. Yeah, yeah you just great. get to see him startled every time. I haven't actually seen Breaking Bad more than just a couple of episodes. Um, but it's an interesting comparison. Like the way that the tension in the scene builds towards something you just know is going to be climactic. It's It was a riveting scene, I thought. And the, the one thing, it might have even been over the top. This guy who plays he's kind of introduced as both a drug dealer, but also like a playboy who hosts these big parties. Rahan or Rahim or something. Yeah. Rahad uh, played by Alfred Molina, who you would know from various things. Oh, if that's actually Alfred Molina, I didn't know that, but he is in the start of Raiders of the Lost Ark. He's the guy who gets the spikes pierced through him. And then of course he was Dr. Octopus in, Spider-Man 2. That's what it was. I knew there was one modern one that he was in that was iconic. <laughs> modern Spider-Man 2 from 20 years ago. Okay, well, I know I'm getting old, but yeah. No, I mean, I, I love Spider-Man 2. That's another one that we've teased off pod a couple yeah. times that eventually we'll we'll probably talk about that one because that was like the best superhero movie up to maybe The Dark Knight. Uh, yeah, it's one I want to revisit. I haven't seen in like a decade, but... Yeah, Alfred Molina as this just insane, druggy, like probably high off his his head, just out of control guy that you never know. He just seems so erratic. And it that too is both weird and raises the tension of the scene. Yeah. I I don't know why all three of them are there. I was wondering like what benefit did they gain from having all three of them in delivering this drug? It's just like more opportunity for someone to break and do something dangerous. Right. Yeah. This scene, it's like effectively done and would be a great just tentpole piece of a tense film. But it just really feels stuck on to me. Like it doesn't really seem to fit the 
arc of the the porn story that we've been telling. It, it almost feels like it belongs to another movie. I can see that. Yeah, it's like a it's almost like a separate short film or something. Right. And while all this craziness is happening and things like any things seem like any moment something's going to go really wrong and somebody's going to wise up to the fakery and someone will get shot. There's like a 30 second, very still shot where Mark Wahlberg is sitting on the couch, just like staring off into space, taking in the magnitude and the gravity of what could happen. And for some reason, I didn't notice this the first time I watched the movie, but like, I was wondering if Netflix had frozen. (laughs) <laughs> like what is it is it progressing after all these times where we've had the camera moving around just it's like frozen in one spot but then he suddenly stands up is like we gotta we gotta leave we gotta get out of here yeah and that's where things turn dark it's weird like they could have probably walked out with five thousand dollars they didn't deserve and it's like they just What's this guy's name? Buck or whatever? He had to throw a wrench in it. Yeah, it seemed like things worked out and Todd snaps. He says, no, we want, you know, everything in your safe. We want all your money. And then a shootout ensues. Todd dies. You know, the like the bodyguards die. Rahan or Rahad, Rahad, Alfred Molina survives. And chases Reed and Dirk off into the night. But they do eventually get away. And they go crawling back to Jack. Dirk is at his lowest. He's hanging his head. And he begs to be taken back. And what do you know? Burt Reynolds lets him come back. And we get a surprisingly happy ending for most of the characters. After all of this dalliance into darkness that we've seen... Uh, things turn out kind of all right for most of the characters in this little epilogue that we have. It's like, uh, Amber, the Julianne Moore character, starts directing films, which is something that she's wanted to do. Uh, Roller Girl goes and takes her GED for high school equivalency. And Dirk can still be a porn star, I guess. He's able to still psych himself up even though he's getting older. I feel like maybe a dude has got more staying power than a woman in this business, but I don't know for sure. It's like, I I kind of thought his niche had been filled, but I guess there are only so many monster dongs in the world. (laughs) Episode title. Oh, and importantly, Reed, John C. Riley, has his magic show, which still has an erotic element, like involves nudity. That's right, yeah. So you get you get a film that ends with John C. Riley doing sexy magic, so can't complain too much about that. So I have a weird connection for this ending scene for you. Okay. So this ending scene is scored to God Only Knows by the Beach Boys. And I have to say, ending scenes, unexpectedly happy, scored to this song, are totally ruined for me because of the movie Love Actually, which has the same gimmick. At the end of the movie, almost everyone is kind of unexpectedly happy, and we see them in their new happy state to this song in the background. 
And I was like, I can't believe that this movie is pulling a Love Actually on us. And then I remembered, of course, that this movie came out before Love Actually. So perhaps <laughs> the makers of Love Actually had some uh, thoughts about that. It, this was six years before Love Actually. so. But that was one thing that pulled me out of the moment for sure. Oh, man. Another ensemble film. Yeah. Wow. Throwing it back. We recorded a Love Actually podcast a long time ago. Back in the misty past. Yeah. Uh, we might have to do it again, but that is not a film that I care for. That's li- leaving like a bad taste in my mouth right as I'm about to drop a nice rating. Uh, but in the final moment of the film, we get one last long take when Mark Wahlberg is getting back into the acting and he's practicing a monologue in front of the mirror. And in the very last instant, he stands up and in a not particularly artful shot, it's just we get our uh, not so grand reveal because he whips his pants down. And in fact, this is a giant cock. <laughs> we, we, we see what we've been waiting to see. And it's so fake. I mean, not that I'm a uh, master on what the many forms of the human penis can look like, but it just looks like plastic. It looks so fake. And that's part of the charm of it to me is like this prosthetic thing. It was a good final punchline in the movie. I thought it worked really well. Unfortunately, I had been spoiled that this was going to happen, which I wish I hadn't because I want to know what my reaction would have been if I hadn't known that that was coming. But it's a good little last kicker, little stinger. How did you have this spoiled for you? How did you know this was coming, having not seen the movie? On some other podcast... Somebody like made a comparison of like one last final thing. And they said, yeah, it's like in Boogie Nights when in the very last shot, we finally see what all the action actually is when he pulls out his huge prosthetic penis. And I was like, oh, man, now I know that that's something that's going to happen in that movie. Um, it's just something I heard somewhere. Yes. The elephant man is revealed. Here it is at last. <laughs> so that was Boogie Nights, all two and a half hours of it. It's a long movie. I didn't know it was going to be that long when I started it. But the thing is, like, it it feels long, but it doesn't ever feel like a drag. It really is pretty watchable for its entire duration, I think. Yeah, I agree. And so did we have some things we wanted to comment on or point out, talk about, before we're ready to declare whether or not 1997's film is good? We, we've talked a lot about a, a lot of the different characters. One character I feel like we have undersold so far is Julianne Moore's character. Like, whereas I thought that Mark Wahlberg's character kind of started as a blank slate, eventually got some interesting things to do. And, you know, John C. Riley, maybe not too much depth to his character. The Julianne Moore character was really interesting and really well acted to me because she has like this weird relationship with the rest of the porn movie making crew where she's kind of like a mother and it's kind of like a surrogate mother thing, but it's also like kind of warped into the sexuality of the world that they live in. I don't know, especially her relationship towards the middle of the movie with Dirk Diggler is that she seems to be like both caring for him maternally and like sort of into him. And their relationship is like quasi romantic 
that's in particular one thing that sets him off on like the new guy is like he's flirting with the Julianne Moore character. I and then we see her, of course, that it's all driven by this pathos for the fact that she's separated from her kids and not just separated from her kids, but because of who she is. Like that's why she's separated from her kids. I thought this was an, a really interesting and really textured character, really played and written really well. Maybe the acting highlight for me. And one of the ones that actually, I feel like in a meaningful and thoughtful way, played off of the premise of the movie that were like, there's people's entire lives is immersed in sex. And how does that kind of warp your mind and change the way you view the world? So kudos to P.T. Anderson and Julianne Moore for, for that character. I really like that. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. It is a really strange dynamic that she has with Mark Wahlberg. When she gets introduced, Burt Reynolds calls her a mother to all those who need love. And that's kind of what we see. And it's kind of weird all along because it's like she is motherly towards everyone, but she's also, you know, fucking everybody's brains out at the same time. Yeah. Like she's calling Mark Wahlberg her little baby boy. But then also, like, lusting after him when he does a good dive into the pool. And obviously making sex movies with him. And it's just very strange. Makes you feel some type of way. (laughs) And, you know, a lot of charismatic performances throughout, for sure. I just want to give one more shout out to Burt Reynolds. Uh, One thing I read is that on the Wikipedia page is that he was very disenchanted during the filming of this um, and did not have a good relationship with PT Anderson and were like, was not enthusiastic in any of like the press about the movie for all that. He gives a really strong performance. He like kind of really carries the movie with his charisma and like his force of personality. And it's just a good performance by a good actor. I, I really liked him in this movie. Yeah, I did too. It's like a little later than you would even think of a Burt Reynolds movie being, you know, this is towards the end of his career. Is he, is he still alive? Oh man, I think so, but I'm going to double check. I think I saw either him or Tom Selleck died in the last couple years. Yeah, it was him. He died in 2018. Okay. But yes, powerful performance. I especially like the scene where he's fighting with, Mark Wahlberg. Yeah. He gets some good line deliveries there. No, yeah, that, it was it was visceral and, like, intense. That was good, for sure. I also got to shout out just all the production design. You know, we get water beds, we get disco dance floors, and all the clothes everybody is wearing, and all the record players, and all the cars. Like, all this stuff had to be put together by a team of people. One thing that... I don't know if we've said during this recording, P.T. Anderson was 26 years old when he made this movie. 26 goddamn years old. He's seven years younger than I am right now. And he has just created this really rich, detailed, purposeful universe. Just everything, the, the, the production details, the way the movie is shot, the variety of the shots, the editing, the look of everything. How the hell did a 26-year-old make this movie? 
there's so much to it and it's a little showy like someone who knows that he's kind of like the the hot kid in town is like showing off his tricks but i'm completely with you it's kind of mind-blowing how much detail they fit into this movie amplified by how young the director was uh orson wells was 25 years old when he made citizen kane well that's true that but that one's like a known one it's like when you talk about mozart oh wow mozart was 17 years old when he wrote this okay but like the first thing you know about mozart is that he was a wonder kid who made masterpieces when most of us were watching homestar runner cartoons on our internet explorer browser no you're right and Actually, this won't be the last mention of Homestar Runner in the not-too-distant future. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, I feel you. I especially feel that sentiment around Olympics time, when we got all these 14-year-olds getting perfect diving scores and stuff. Oh, yeah. It's, like, amazing how much people can accomplish in their lives when they're young. Makes you feel old. Oh, yeah. I think I mentioned I watched a movie I really liked last year called shit house and it's in the tradition of mumblecore movies which i i don't i've certainly said off air i don't know if i've said on air that at some point i'm gonna bring a good mumblecore or at least an interesting mumblecore to this podcast but that movie was made by a 23 year old and it's like 23 year olds should not be doing things this accomplished it's it's off-putting to me i'm an old man who hasn't done enough stuff this time i feel you i also really like the tone of the movie overall the it does a good job of mixing elements of darkness and humor there's a line early on when burt reynolds is talking to the cinematographer and the cinematographer says no it's too dark there's shadows and burt reynolds says there's shadows in life man (laughs) and i just think it's like wow you could have a tagline for the movie. There's shadows in life. That's good. <laughs> in real life, people wear ridiculous dreadlock wigs and, and white leather leather outfits. I don't know. Yeah, this is cinema verite here. You know, every day people are getting their heads exploded in front of you at the donut counter. <laughs> and so you get a, a bag of $20,000 or whatever it is. Yeah. So, see... Dan mentioned it, but this is like, take a Linklater movie where you've got the very detailed recreations of period parties and then just add in Tarantino's over-the-top violence and, yeah, you get this. You focus a lot on the soundtrack, yeah. Yeah, only for a few scenes, but yeah. That's that's an interesting, I kind of like that. You kind of throw them in a blender. It has its own cadence to it, too. That's kind of sprawling, but also like not so sprawling that it feels like it's just wasting your time, at least most of the time. Uh, there was one or two times where I felt like, why are we in this tangent? What? How is this improving my cinematic experience? For me, the one was the <laughs> music recording career. But I think you mentioned that you felt that way about the botched drug deal. Uh-huh. Yeah, the only thing that I said was listed under not so good maybe for me uh when we were getting ready to record uh, dan said we had to push back our recording time a little bit because there was too much movie to think about and that's that's my bullet point is too much movie question mark like could it have been condensed a bit trimmed a little bit 
I think maybe some of the conversations could be winnowed down. I think maybe the drug act, the drug deal at the end could have been made a little more concise, perhaps. But if it were at the expense of some of these good moments, uh, I, I don't know that I'm for cutting too much. Right. Uh, like there's, there's just this moment where John C. Riley recites a terrible poem that he says he wrote. <laughs> Amazing poem. About going down the sugar tree. And yeah, it's, it's good. But the bees won't sting. I love you. You love me. Going down the sugar tree. <laughs> and then, then Mark Wahlberg says, wow, man, that's really good. <laughs> Which is just the perfect. No, this is exactly what he says. He says, that's fucking great. Did you write that? <laughs> As if like an astonishment. <laughs> oh, man. I, I like Mark Wahlberg in this movie. I thought he did a good job. He does. No, he's good. Yeah. <laughs> oh, all right. Anything, anything else you want to point out that maybe you didn't like? Uh... I, I do have one other thing and I've kind of already hinted at this a little bit. Um, so one thing that bothers me in workplace comedies, like sitcoms, like think the office, for example, or Brooklyn nine, nine or something is that it's implausible to me that the set of people that you meet on like the first day are the same people that you're going to be working with and caring about X years later. In this case, it's about eight years later. And for the office, it was about that too. But like, it just, it feels like a contrivance that these nice people that we all meet in the opening shot are like, Oh, it's uncle Steve. And like all these people, they're still together as God only knows plays in the background. Like, to the extent that this movie tries to emphasize that, hey, it's just a business. It's just like, you know, any other business you might do, except it's got its own quirks. It rang false to me that they had this happily ever after. I mean, I still enjoyed it and I still was happy to see them happy and happy to see them together and being the best versions of themselves. And I, I don't begrudge a filmmaker to be generous with his characters to some extent, but I, it removed me a little bit, I will say, from the narrative experience. You've commented on that before to me about how it would be unrealistic for people to work together at the same job for a long time. And it makes me think I need to really be more gung-ho about the job search. I did recently uh, change jobs for the first time in like eight years. So I need to... Keep up the status quo by perhaps uh, doing that a little more regularly from now on. But think about the wide variety of people you worked with in those eight years. No, you're right. That's true. There is turnover. Turnover is real. Apple or otherwise. I don't know what that meant. I like a good Apple turnover. I, I enjoy them as well. Are we ready now to say how we really feel? To put everything on the line and kiss Mark Wahlberg on the mouth? I'm almost ready because I have one more thing. Okay. And this is maybe the most important thing we're going to talk about tonight. Do you know the famous what if with this movie? Oh, was there a casting difference that might have happened? Yes. Okay. What was it? Well, a certain up and coming actor was offered the Dirk Diggler role in 1997. And it was, it was a, Teen heartthrob. Oh, was it Leo? Who wanted, it was. 
And he was about to take it, but then he got another offer in 1997. What do you think that that, that other movie that he took instead of this was? It was uh, probably Titanic. Indeed, another movie we've talked about on this podcast. Can you imagine this movie with Leo in Mark Wahlberg's role? Actually, I can, because have you ever seen 1995's Basketball Diaries? No, I thought you were going to go Wolf of Wall Street on that. No, uh, there's a movie from shortly before this that I actually was thinking of repeatedly where Leo plays this high schooler who plays basketball and he gets involved with drugs. And so we see scenes where he's just like drooling all over himself and losing his composure and things get dark to the point that he's actually like out prostituting himself. Wow. So it's not entirely unrealized and like maybe they were looking at him for this because of that that's plausible yeah but man certainly his and mark Wahlberg's career would look entirely different if that timing had just been a little bit different and uh, leo had been in this movie i don't know what it would look like but yeah and and i mean think about that that would mean that then he was not in titanic right exactly right because Titanic was kind of a, obviously a springboard for his superstardom. Like, I don't think we'd talk about Leo the way we talk about him today if he wasn't in Titanic for, at all. No. Yeah. So I thought that was a pretty wild what if on this movie. Yeah, I agree. Um, my favorite is still that Sean Connery was going to be Gandalf or was offered Gandalf in the Lord of the Rings movies. And he said, really, he said he read the script and he didn't understand anything in it. <laughs> and he said, this is too weird. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> and he turned him down. So I read a thing recently that Joseph Gordon Levitt was asked by an interviewer. He said, would you be interested in playing the character? Darkwing or something like that, like someone who Robin eventually became. If the uh, Zack Snyder universe were to extend into this, and he, and Joseph Gordon Levitt was like, "I'm gonna be real with you, man. I have absolutely no idea what you were talking about right now," and I had some appreciation for Joseph Gordon Levitt in that moment. And I think that's similar to what Sean Connery might have been feeling when he read the original Lord of the Rings script. But <laughs> yeah, you're probably right. Anyways, I'm ready to throw a rating on this thing, and sorry for dragging it out a little bit more here. Oh, no worries. Take the stage. You're getting your little statuette. What do you got <laughs> to say about Boogie Nights? This, as I mentioned, is a real-ass film that might not have been a real dick, but it was a, certainly a real-ass film. I really love this movie. I had a blast watching it. I think it's it's fantastic. I had just enough reservations that I cannot bestow it the beloved eight out of eight on our goodness scale masterpiece rating, but it's pretty damn close. I'm going to say this is an exceptionally good movie. I think it does so much with its craft, with the long shots, immersing you in its world. The script is actually really good. It's for a two and a half hour movie. Almost everything matters. There's, some things you could cut and it goes on a little bit long, but it immerses you the whole time. And the acting, the cast, oh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, John C. Riley, Julianne Moore. Oh, it just goes on and on. It's a, it's a delight. I can see why this is a cult classic. I can see why this launched a famed director's career. 
I'm in on this movie. I'm giving it an exceptionally good rating. I think that this is a excellent movie for sure. And I'm going to say basically the same, except I will give it the eight. Dan asked me recently, you know, back in the day, we kind of reconnected uh, with our writing about films online. Uh, this was like uh, around about 2013. And I wrote a series of 100 blog posts about my favorite movies at that time. And uh, we were talking recently about what would be on the list now. And would anything we talked about on the podcast so far earn a slot on a new top 100 favorites? And I said I wasn't sure. I said maybe Parasite as far as something new to me. But now here is one that was not on that list that is in the mix now. Uh, alongside maybe Return of the Living Dead. Uh, but I really, really like this film. I watched it kind of on a whim a couple years back, not really knowing anything about it, and was just super sucked in, uh, a la Burt Reynolds' vision. You know, I had to stick around to the end because I was so engaged by the story. And it's really well made. Just all of these show-offy shots that I was wondering, how do you do that? Especially such a young director. Just an embarrassment of riches all around. And I mean, John C. Riley even in there for some laughs. And he's a magician. Yeah. I mean, oh my gosh. Like, my jaw dropped when William H. Macy shot himself. And then later on they got me again when all of a sudden Don Cheadle is covered in brains in his white suit. Like, it, it didn't feel cheap that there's just suddenly something violent happens. Like, I thought it fit with what they were trying to do. No, I like that. And this is up there with American Graffiti and Parasite as a movie that I'm very open to bumping up to an eight if I were to watch it again and have it raised even slightly more in my esteem uh, in reviewing. So... Given that you've seen it, you said three or four times and feel that strongly about it. That's that's high praise. Yeah. So that's where we're at. Definitely a good one. If you haven't felt too spoiled by what we've said, but have stuck with us to the end here, do go check out Boogie Nights. You know, I, I feel good that we can point you towards a good film after several weeks of uh, rougher waters. Uh, <laughs> I, I do want to keep bad movies in our discussion. Uh, we've had a listener call us out for, oh, you're, you're telling us our movie's good and you're like queuing up best picture winners? You know, oh, what a challenge is that? <laughs> uh, but So I, I do want to keep the, the floodgates open to maybe throw on a schlock fest every now and again. Oh, I've got a couple in mind, yeah. But I'm glad that here we have... Uh, a high watermark. And so, Dan, what's coming up the waterway next? What what lies ahead? So it's, it's interesting you mentioned um, how I recently engaged with you on like what are some recent movies you've seen that would rank in your, your all-time top tier movies you've seen for the first time recently. And it's funny. I basically, when we started this podcast, I decided I was going to get more serious about 
my movie analysis and logging and ranking. And I've actually ranked every single movie I've seen since we started the podcast in terms of how I feel about it and given everyone a is a good rating, uh, our one to eight goodness scale. And the the top rated movie or the movie that I have ranked highest that I had not seen before we started this podcast is actually one that I watched on my own. It's not one that we watched for this podcast. It is a black and white David Lean film called Brief Encounter about a would-have-been romance. It's a really great film. I won't spoil it for you, but I encourage you to go check it out. David Lean, known a little bit later in his career for big epics like Lawrence of Arabia. So um, I really enjoyed his little more intimate romantic film, and it made me wonder if he had any more intimate romantic films. And um, I stumbled across this one that I know next to nothing about. It's a 1955 film by David Lean. It's not black and white. It's Technicolor. And the poster promises bright colors. So we'll see. I know it stars Catherine Hepburn. It is called Summertime. And I thought, based on the title, it likely takes place during summer. And summer is at least somewhat central to the the setting and the theme. I guess we'll see. But, Brian, I'm going to task you with watching... 1955's Summertime and discussing it with me next week. That sounds good, Dan. I'm looking forward to it. And we hope you'll listen to us too, listeners, as you've done just now, and that you stick with us. And now that you've heard from us, we want to hear from you. Email us a review of Boogie Nights or any film we've previously discussed. Each week, you know, once these start coming in, We'll read one of your reviews on the podcast, and if we pick your review, we'll send you a $5 Amazon gift card, enough for a free movie rental. You can send your review to thegoodsfilmpodcast at gmail.com. That's thegoodsfilmpodcast at gmail.com, and we look forward to hearing from you. Have a good night, everybody. Bye.